This is MTC, Many Things Considered, a podcast on history and politics where we look at politics past to help make sense of politics present. I'm going to open up our libel laws so when they write purposely negative and horrible and false articles, we can sue them and win lots of money. We're going to open In this episode, all the news, fake and otherwise, that was, of course, the nation's chief media critic. If you don't understand the Internet by now, then you're going to be surprised that there's fake news out there. I mean, good God, fake news is always, you know, embellished news has always been. Look at William Randolph Hearst, look at Joseph Pulitzer, you know. And that was James E. J. Shalliday, one of the greatest curmudgeons I've ever encountered in the journalism racket. Jay is a former reporter and editor for newspapers in Idaho and for the Salt Lake Tribune. He is now the professional in residence at Louisiana State University's School of Mass Communications. Jay conveniently mentioned Hearst, William Randolph Hearst, the model for Citizen Kane, Orson Welles' 1941 film masterpiece about a media mogul who, well, occasionally created the news. We have no secrets from our readers, Mr. Bernstein. Mr. Thatcher is one of our most devoted readers. He knows what's wrong with every copy of the Inquirer since I took over. Read the cable. Girls delightful in Cuba, stop. Could send you prose poems about scenery, but don't feel right spending your money. Stop. There is no war in Cuba. Signed, Wheeler. Any answer? Yes, dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems. I'll provide the war. That's fine, Mr. Kane. Yes, I rather liked myself. So right away. I came to see Later in this episode, I'll talk about William Randolph Hearst with historian David Nassau, who has written the spectacular story of the man who was the biggest media power in the country in the first half of the 20th century. And yes, there are parallels that link that time to ours. Uh, we remember him today as the model for Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, though he was much, much more than that. He ran the largest chain of newspapers in this country from 1900 into the 1940s. He had radio stations, newsreel outlets, magazines. Uh, He was, you know, a Murdoch writ large for the first half of the 20th century. But first, before we look back, let's take stock of the present moment and look forward just a little. Finally got to use that sound effect. I've been looking for an excuse. So what a year American journalism has had. Repeatedly attacked by the man who will be president, accused both of doing too much or not enough, to either aid or destroy one or the other of the candidates. Journalism, it's being said, either failed in its mission to illuminate and inform, or proved itself to be increasingly irrelevant in the age of Facebook and Twitter. I went searching for the perfect example of how difficult it is proving to be to grasp just what has happened to the media. That's a word I generally don't embrace, but which does describe the murky universe of newspapers, websites, cable, the networks, social media, all the places we turn to for information or misinformation. Here's my example. President Obama addressing the media elites at the White House Correspondents' Dinner in March of 2016. Well, let me conclude tonight on a more serious note. Uh, 
I want to thank the Washington Press Corps. I want to thank Carol for all that you do. You know, the free press is central to our democracy, and nah, I'm just kidding. You know I've got to talk about Trump. My name is Damien Radcliffe, and I'm the Carolyn S. Chambers Professor in Journalism at the University of Oregon. I asked Professor Damien Radcliffe, he's an internationally respected analyst of media trends and how technology is changing the way we get and consume information, what his post-presidential election takeaways amount to. Well, I think that, that we're still trying to unpack what some of these takeaways are. And what's interesting is to see that here we are a month after the election and still every day, uh, it's impossible to go online or open a newspaper and not find more and more post-mortems and discussion about the intricacies of the campaign and whether or not uh, political journalists and the media did their job properly. And it looks like there's no end in sight, certainly in the foreseeable future, for that kind of uh, analysis and uh, sort of internalizing of whether we did our job uh, well, and indeed, what does political journalism mean in the age of Trump? There may be at least one thing that is crystal clear about the state of American journalism. Most Americans are deeply skeptical about the industry. A recent Bloomberg politics poll found that only 35% of those surveyed held a favorable opinion of the national media, while 57% were unfavorable. Even more, 64% thought the media's watchdog role was not being handled effectively. Someone we all know pretty well now has capitalized on those sentiments. I'll tell you what. I think the media is among the most dishonest groups of people I've ever met. The New York Times which is losing a fortune, which is a failing newspaper, which probably won't be around that much longer, but probably somebody will buy it as a trophy, keep it going for a little longer. But I think the New York Times is one of the most dishonest media outlets I've ever seen in my life. The worst. The worst. The absolute worst. They have an agenda that you wouldn't believe. And they're run by incompetent people. They are totally incompetently run. Washington Post, I have to tell you, I have respect for Jeff Bezos, but he bought the Washington Post to have political influence. And I got to tell you, we have a different country than we used to have. We have a different, he owns Amazon. He wants political influence so that Amazon will benefit from it. That's not right. And believe me, if I become president, oh, do they have problems. They're going to have such problems. The media critique, the media bashing, if you will, became and remains a staple of Donald Trump's outreach to his supporters. Even though Trump rarely, if ever, attempts to correct just what it is that the dishonest media has gotten wrong, his critique is never specific, but always sweeping and persistent, and his supporters obviously eat it up. Here again is Damian Radcliffe, the University of Oregon professor. They're also consistently being fed this uh, line by Trump that the, the system is rigged, that it is rigged against him, that the media lies, and that uh, he doesn't get given fair representation. And if you re- repeat a lie often enough, or a line often enough, people will start to accept that as, as being the truth. Uh, and I think that's probably where we are right now. 
Jay Shelliday, the newspaper editor turned journalism educator, says at some level the elite media missed the appeal of Donald Trump by focusing too often on the wrong things. You know, they focused on Trump on the angry people, what I refer to as the droolers inside the uh, Trump support group. Shelliday says the political media relied too much on public opinion polling to shape coverage and that too many in the business live and work in a bubble. People in New York and Washington, D.C. don't get it. Uh, They don't get the rest of the country at all. And so it's sometimes hard for them to spot things or to, to gauge the level of frustration. Having said that, and the Trump media critique notwithstanding, there was a great deal of remarkable reporting during the long and brutal campaign, including stories that likely will remain relevant in the days and months ahead. The Washington Post's extensive reporting, for example, on Trump's charitable giving, or the lack thereof. The New York Times reporting on what little is known about Trump's tax returns, showing that he had avoided paying taxes. And detailed stories, again, stories never challenged on the merits, about his many lawsuits, his pattern of avoiding paying vendors, the vast web of conflicts that emanate from his business holdings. And now the connections with Russian President Vladimir Putin and the reported Russian role in influencing the election outcome. All that receiving great attention. Here's Damian Radcliffe. I'm not sure that any of that really punched through to undecideds or people or, or persuaded people to perhaps vote in a different way. And that, for me, is a really interesting question that I think we need to explore and unpack in more detail to try and understand what is the power of political journalism in 2016 and are our teeth uh, more blunt than perhaps they that they once were, or has this has this always been the case? Do we need to redefine what political journalism means in an era of of President Trump? I think there's some really fundamental questions to ask about what does political journalism mean in 2016? How do we ensure that uh, we are able to continue to speak uh, truth to power and hold authority and elected officials accountable? And do we perhaps, in in this day and age, need to do things differently? Do we uh, need to refine what we think of as political journalism and the ways in which we communicate with audiences? And Professor Radcliffe says while there was an abundance of quality journalism focused on the candidates, it may have come too late in the campaign to make much of a difference, at least with regard to Donald Trump. By the time we got to September, October, early November, and we started to see a real uh, rush of this kind of reporting and lots of in-depth analysis and, and the, the fruits of investigative work starting to um, bear fruit. But by that point, um, Trump was already the, the nominee. He'd already amassed uh, all of this uh, free airtime and had all of this momentum. If we'd have started to see these stories coming out in January, February, March, you know, six months earlier or, or earlier still, might that have had more of an impact? And obviously, we don't know the answer to that. But I, I wonder if, if it might have been different because uh, there were opportunities to perhaps interrogate uh, his uh, business background and credentials and some of his uh, political ideas in more detail at an, at an earlier point than perhaps was the case.
Okay, this seems like a good place to pause from the current heated debate about journalism, politics, facts, and fakes, and consider briefly, in a broad sense, what has been happening to journalism over the last decade or so. I'm Roger Plotho. I'm the publisher and editor of the Post Register newspaper, plus three small weeklies here in eastern Idaho, and I'm also um, the vice president of a regional um, portion of our company. So Roger Plotho runs, among other things, a daily community newspaper in a town of about 60,000 people. He and his journalists are, in many ways, the media's shock troops, on the front line absorbing the huge and disruptive changes that have altered the news business in fundamental ways. The Internet disrupted the business of journalism to a, a great degree. And so, whereas in... In 1990, you had newsrooms that were were truly full of great journalists. I just finished watching the Spotlight, and it was a reminder of kind of the end of an era in many ways where a lot of newsrooms, big and small, could afford to, to send four or five reporters off on assignment for months at a time. Well, the Internet had disrupted the, the economics that allowed that to happen. Let's have John Oliver, the host of Last Week Tonight, pick up on this story. Oliver made an unabashed appeal on his television show early in 2016 for support for traditional newspaper journalism. And the problem is, print ads are less popular with, with advertisers than they used to be. And online ads produce much less revenue. I'll show you. Between... 2004 and 2014, newspapers gained $2 billion in online ad revenue. Unfortunately, in that same period, they lost $30 billion in print revenue. So that's like finding a lucky penny on the sidewalk on the same day your bank account is drained by a 16-year-old Belgian hacker. (laughs) And this has led to cutbacks in newsrooms. Again, look at the Oregonian. Secondarily to that, people began coming onto the Internet through various openings, whether it was initially um, MySpace or just kind of uh, messing around with AOL or whatever it was, and then, of course, Google and Facebook and and now all of the other opportunities. And they come on, and they're not prepared for what they are diving into. At the same time, community newspapers like Roger Plotho's Post Register were struggling and scrambling to adapt to the Internet revolution. And while advertisers and viewers were experiencing a vast new world of media choices, the search for revenue, at least by some, seemed to collide with the high purpose of journalism. Maybe the need to make money and the idea of high journalistic purpose have always been in conflict. But not before 2016 would you have heard a major network executive say something like this. Man, who would have expected the ride we're all having right now? This is pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, who would have thought that this circus would come to town? But, um, you know, it may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. That's all I got to (laughs) say. Les Moonves there. He's the executive chairman and CEO of the storied CBS franchise. He was speaking at an industry conference in February 2016. Moonves later said that he was kind of joking around with those comments and was referring to ad spending and not to ratings. But he also said this. 
it, it, it is, I've never seen anything like this. And, uh, you know, this is going to be a, a very good year for us. <laughs> Sorry. It's a terrible thing to say, but uh, bring it on, Donald. Go ahead. Keep going. Uh, don't write. Somebody, I, I did, said that at another investor conference the next day, some blog put out, Moonvest supporting Trump wholeheartedly. I said, no, no, no. It's, it's, I'm, I'm not taking it aside. I'm just saying for us economically, Donald's place in this election is a good thing. CBS is a hedge right, on right. Trump. It, 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 exactly. That's what you're saying. Got it. This is the point, of course, where I point out that arguably the most famous broadcast in television news history, CBS's 60 Minutes, while it did do sit-down interviews, often with tough and probing questions directed at both parties' presidential and vice presidential candidates, did not devote a single episode in 2016 to any of those issues I mentioned earlier that were covered by newspaper journalists. Taxes, business dealings, conflict of interest, Russian ties— nor, for that matter, was there much real reporting, on television at least, of Democrat Hillary Clinton. It was mostly talking heads, interviews, and coverage of big and boisterous rallies. As Los Angeles Times columnist Michael Hiltzik observed in March, and I quote, Driven almost exclusively by advertising, the business model all but dictates that almost everything on TV be reduced to the lowest level of entertainment. Hiltzik quoted the social critic Neil Postman, who wrote more than 30 years ago that Americans are in danger of amusing ourselves to death. Mark Johnson here. Thanks for joining us for Many Things Considered. Our episode, All the News, Fake and Otherwise. The president is weighing in on a story we've been following this week, fake news that popped up on social media during the election season and may have influenced some voters. NBC's national... Voices as diverse as Pope Francis and the European Union have been condemning so-called fake news in the days since the U.S. election. Others, for sake of simplicity and clarity, say the Internet is simply a wash in propaganda, or even more simply, lies. Here's how NBC's Today Show recently characterized the issue. For millions of Americans, Facebook is much more than a powerful social media platform. It's where they get their news. The problem is, fake news is shared more than ever. A BuzzFeed analysis found that fake election news generated more buzz on Facebook than stories from 19 mainstream news outlets combined. Fake news is such big news, where, President Obama weighed uh, in Thursday. There's so much active misinformation, and it's packaged very well, and it looks the same when you see it on a Facebook page or you turn on your television. I am Jennifer Stromer-Galley, and I'm a professor in the School of Information Studies at Syracuse University. Jennifer Stromer-Galley studies the Internet and its impact on politics. She's also president of the Association of Internet Researchers. The one thing that we don't know is the degree to which this fake news um, problem impacted the election. So uh, there's been speculation that it might have had an impact, and I just, we don't have good evidence. We've got anecdotes and nothing systematic or concrete that might suggest that um, this fake news phenomenon had an impact in the election. And again, the University of Oregon's Damian Radcliffe. The first thing to say is that fake news is nothing new. 
Uh, it's been around since since time immemorial, and uh, there have been plenty of instances of hoaxes uh, in the media across across different platforms, or exaggerated through to entirely made up stories. And certain publications and outlets have really kind of majored on that. Um, what's different, I think, in this, in this day and age, is that if you used to pick up a certain publication, you would often know. Um, that it might have a particular editorial agenda or that it was more sensationalist and you might take what it said with a certain pinch of salt. Uh, it's much harder to do that in a digital age because content that is uh, fake or exaggerated um, and is, looks pretty much the same when you see it in your social feed as anything that is from a credible source. There is nothing to to gauge from the sort of look and feel um, in that kind of tangible sense, to get a sense of the veracity of what you are looking at or reading or, li- or listening to. So the NBC story referenced the BuzzFeed analysis of fake news. Among the top trending fake news stories in the last few weeks of the campaign was the fabrication that the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump and that an FBI agent, quote, suspected in Hillary Clinton's email leaks, had been found dead in an apparent murder-suicide. Total complete fabrications. But just look around the internet, even casually, and you'll find a lifetime worth of these kinds of fabrications and conspiracy theories. Really crazy stuff. The Newtown school shootings were staged. The 9-11 attacks were a Jewish conspiracy. The moon landing was faked. FEMA is developing mass concentration camps in the United States. Sharia law is secretly taking over America. In the post-election environment, fake news brought an armed man into a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C., determined to investigate a child sex abuse plot allegedly involving Hillary Clinton. The president-elect's national security advisor has been accused of spreading some of these conspiracy theories. Now, this is a family podcast, but so much of what exists on the Internet is, well, it's just crap. Here again is newspaper publisher and editor Roger Plotho and former editor Jay Shalladay. When you go in there, you are it's it's the equivalent of uh diving into a cesspool. You you are most of what is surrounding you is garbage. It is what it is. Anybody can get on there. You have a newspaper, you have a television station, you allow every idiot on the face of the earth to, to write or to get on the air, you're gonna get some of that stuff. Yeah, the difference is is that uh, television and, and newspapers are somewhat filtered, vetted. There are standards. So circle back now to the implications of all of this for our politics. It's now conventional wisdom that Barack Obama's 2008 campaign succeeded in creating an entirely new way of reaching and influencing voters by using the Internet and social media. They were able to accumulate vast amounts of data on voters that allowed precise targeting and the delivery of tailored messages. Every election since has tried to refine and improve upon that approach. But then along came Donald Trump. The common storyline, especially with social media, is that Donald Trump was not spending as much on digital strategy. There was no information coming out of his campaign about the ways that his campaign was using data for decision-making, for targeting of 
particular demographic groups or socio-demographic groups offline and online. And so the, the suggestion was that the, the campaign wasn't very sophisticated in terms of that digital decision-making and strategy, but it turns out um, now that the campaign is over and the campaign staff are beginning to talk that, in fact, Trump's campaign was um, quite sophisticated in terms of how they're using data, data analytics, and social media to um, do fundraising, targeted advertising, get out the vote efforts, and also, it seems, voter suppression. So most of the media missed the effort the Trump campaign was making around social media. The Trump campaign hired Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica is a British firm. The Guardian and other U.K. publications have reported that Stephen Bannion, the man who will be Donald Trump's chief White House strategist, is a board member of Cambridge Analytica, a data firm that had something that proved extremely valuable to the Trump campaign. 220 million voters in a database that includes a variety of information about voting behavior. So how often do you vote? Do you vote uh, in off-presidential election cycles? Um, There's consumer data, credit card histories, uh, purchasing habits, magazine subscriptions, memberships to organizations like the National Rifle Association, as well as social media behavior. And Cambridge Analytica has a um, built a, a profile or a set of profiles on psychological characteristics. So they use um, in psychology what's called the Big Five psychological indicators: openness, conscientiousness, neuroticism, um, extroversion, and agreeableness. And has categorized voters in this massive database on those psychological characteristics. And then it turns out that the, the Trump campaign was purchasing. Uh, Facebook ads and doing targeted messaging on those psychological characteristics uh, to particular voters. And it seemed to have been a remarkably successful strategy. Now, it's not the only strategy. You cannot discount how important Trump's message was, his persona, his character, the way he resonated. This was a change election cycle, and he was the candidate for change. And all of that, I think, has to be factored in as well. But it turned out he had a more sophisticated game than a lot of people gave him credit for. So remember again the words of the CBS executive, gleeful about the election year money flowing to television. Man, who would have expected the ride we're all having right now? This is pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, who would have thought that this circus would come to town? But, um, you know... Post-election analysis of campaign spending indicates that the presidential campaign spent about $900 million on television ads in the last cycle. No wonder that CBS guy was happy. But still, that's only slightly more than was spent by the presidential campaigns of Barack Obama and Mitt Romney four years ago. Hillary Clinton's campaign spent substantially more than Donald Trump's campaign. Roughly two-thirds of the total was spent by Clinton. So now a consensus is beginning to emerge that this campaign may really have been the high watermark for TV ad spending. The game now is Facebook. Typically, if you're a Facebook user, that's where you're getting your news. And you're getting it from friends and acquaintances who are sharing stuff they see on websites and then posting those links to their Facebook news feed so that their friends can see those articles and know about them. 185 million Americans are on Facebook. 
a number that may grow to $215 million or more by the next election. A huge percentage of Internet users use Facebook, and one of the reasons it's so powerful and so susceptible to spreading bad information is that we, each and every one of us, is our own editor. At least theoretically, if you have the right data, the right targeting of an audience, you can maximize the fake news, the propaganda, to maximum political impact. Um, the concern there is the information filter, the, the sort of um, filter bubble, this concern that those who are in your social network and that you're engaging with on Facebook, they're the ones you keep seeing in your Facebook feed. And so there's a homogenization that happens potentially in terms of the information and the opinions that you're being exposed to. That's a problem for us in a democracy. We must be exposed to countervailing or alternative or contradictory information, ideas and perspectives and facts that perhaps run counter to what we currently believe or hold. And if people aren't being exposed to that counterinformation, that leads to greater political polarization. We are already a highly polarized society with conservatives being more conservative and, and sort of firm in that, as well as liberals being more liberal and very firm in that. The more we're polarized, uh, the harder it is for, for us to understand each other, to find common ground, and for our legislators to get policy done. Facebook has long maintained that it is, as the Washington Post said recently, simply a provider of pleasant connections. But the recent election indicates it is much more than that. And our information studies professor has at least one modest suggestion for the entity that seems destined to overtake television advertising as the principal means of political communication. You know, I've proposed that Facebook um, think about adding a nudging feature so that when you find a news article that you want to share on Facebook, if Facebook has a list of known fake news um, purveyors, then when you copy that link into your Facebook wall, a little nudge pops up and says, um, this site might be, this news article might be coming from a fake news site. Are you sure you want to post it? And those little things force us to become much more aware of what we're thinking and what we're paying attention to and could hopefully mitigate a little bit that tendency to be disseminating fake news or even actually becoming aware of it in the first place because often people aren't really aware that what they're sharing is fake. I'm Mark Johnson, and you're listening to Many Things Considered, a podcast on politics and history. And yes, we do occasionally make the audacious claim that if you understand history a little better, maybe you understand what's going on at the moment a little better. David Nassau, I'm the Arthur M. Schlesinger, Jr. Professor of History at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And the author of The Chief a definitive account of the man who once ruled the greatest media empire in America. William Randolph first was the, the first true media mogul and a man who had significant political ambitions, certainly early in life. He ran for several offices in New York State and served a couple terms in Congress and was a power 
in the Democratic Party in California, in New York, and nationally as well. Long before there was Facebook or Twitter, William Randolph Hearst understood the power of the personal connection, the connection of his media empire to his readers, listeners, and viewers. The Hearst empire created vast amounts of content, stories, often the more sensational the better, occasionally with only a casual connection to the truth. And then Hearst pushed that content out to the public in a way that we would say today made it go viral. Exactly. His, he realized very early that the content could be spread over several platforms and that it was more efficient and more effective for a publisher to become a media mogul and to use his stable of writers, photographers to perform tasks for him in his newspapers, his print journals, and his newsreels and radio stations. In 1941, 25-year-old Orson Welles brought a version of Hearst to the big screen. The film was a cinematic sensation and tweaked the most powerful media boss in the country. Do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. It's certainly coming, coming to this theater. And I think our Mercury actors make it an attraction. I'd like you to meet them. Speaking of attractions... At the time of its release, the New York Times called Citizen Kane one of the great, if not the greatest, motion pictures of all time. But the Times also admitted the film was riding the crest of what it called perhaps the most provocative publicity wave ever to float a motion picture. If it had not so clearly been about him, you have to think that Hearst would have loved the story and the controversy. As it was, he tried to get the film suppressed. I love this scene. The young Charles Foster Kane, based upon William Randolph Hearst, played by Orson Welles, is explaining his news philosophy to his financial overseer. Listen closely to Kane's populist rhetoric. You may have heard something like it somewhere else recently. I sympathize with you. Charles Foster Kane is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can form such a committee, put me down for a contribution of $1,000. My time's On the other hand, I am the publisher of the Inquirer. As such, it's my duty, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hard-working people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates just because they haven't anybody to look after their interests. I'll let you in on another little secret, Mr. Thatcher. I think I'm the man to do it, you see. I have money and property. If I don't look after the interests of the underprivileged, maybe somebody else will. Maybe somebody without any money or property. Yes, yes, and that yes. Would money be too and property. Bad. Well, I happened to see your financial statement today, Charles. Oh, did you? Now, tell me honestly, my boy. Don't you think it's rather unwise to continue this philanthropic enterprise, this inquirer that's costing you a million dollars a year? You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. 
they were not shy. They did not hide behind some notion of objectivity. They did not subscribe to the New York Times policy, all the news that's fit to print. They printed all the news they saw fit to print and made that abundantly clear. Now, at the time, at the time, most citizens of this country, reading citizens, literate citizens, bought more than one newspaper. So they got their views from a variety of, of different sources. Nonetheless, each of those sources was out front in pushing the positions, the policies, the prejudices and biases of the individual owners of those papers. I'm beginning to wonder what with the Internet and our often freewheeling disdain for facts and nuance, if we aren't going back to the future, back to a new Hurstian era updated with 21st century technology. Here's LSU's Jay Shalladay. I do see a parallel with uh, the, uh, in some ways, with the, uh, the amount of media outlets we have online. I see parallels back to a time when, you know, each city had half a dozen newspapers. They had agendas. All of them had agendas. And the notion of an objective media was just laughable. And in fact, it wasn't even thought to be necessary. So you went and picked your... You went and picked the publication that came closest to your beliefs. There was no central source of news. But no one of those papers had anywhere near the power that, that, a, that a big website might have. Hearst biographer David Nassau expects the kind of media outlets that the next president of the United States holds in such low regard, the New York Times and the Washington Post, for example, will increasingly stand apart in tone and substance and tradition from an entirely new media universe based almost exclusively on advocacy, or if you will, propaganda of one form or another. And the danger, I think, moving forward, is that more and more people are going to get their news and opinions from these online partisan sources, and fewer and fewer people. Uh, um, And those partisan sources, I'm sorry, include uh, cable outlets. Uh, and fewer and fewer are going to get them from those print, online, and broadcast, and cable outlets that aim at giving both sides of the story and at fairness. So here's a new term you may hear a good deal more about, news literacy, the idea that we all need to learn how to be discerning consumers of information, particularly in a new age when so much of what we have at the touch of our smartphone or at the end of a Google search is just crap in a huge cesspool. Well, it's pretty discouraging because at at this rate, um, (laughs) I'm going to have to speak to a lot of... uh, junior high and high school classes to make any progress. There are people out there that are teaching about news literacy, and I think this has to be something that is a standard 
lesson, if not a standard class, in our in our curricula. We need to ensure that everybody comes to any kind of media content that they consume with an element of interrogation, uh, that they need to look at multiple sources, uh, different sources to try and get a sense of what the real picture might be. We know there are many different viewpoints um, and so getting a sense of what that spectrum might look like in informing your views uh, from a variety of different viewpoints before ascertaining uh, your, your own opinions and your own stance on particular issues is something that I think we need to see um, a lot more of. I guess my biggest concern is people can't make good decisions in their best interest if they don't actually have the correct facts. And I, as a social scientist, I do believe in facts. I think there are, there are truths out there that collectively we can all point to and say that's true and that's false. And when we start to create universes of, of people or filtered bubbles of people who believe in a set of facts that aren't true, they themselves cannot make decisions that are in their interest. And that is dangerous for us in a democracy. We need to all at least have basic access to shared and commonly agreed upon truth. Um, and if we don't even have that, then there's no basis upon which we can build a society and make policy decisions. So I'm making this sound big and bleak, but I, I am genuinely quite concerned about the problem. I don't think we've hit bottom. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just one one journalist in a small town, uh, but I do try to pay attention to what's going on out there. I don't see any reason to think that it's going to get any better anytime soon. Um, I think it's going to take a collaborative effort among a lot of people. It's going to take a collective effort among a lot of people. And I think it's going to take some real, some very serious um, crises that are based on this idea. And certainly I think you know you can argue that we have one now. But you could also, you would also say, to the people who voted for Trump, they don't think this is a crisis. However, he he got in; he's their guy, and so it's you know um, we'll, we'll have to see. But um, I I don't see any reason to believe that in the short term there are enough people who see this as a major issue to start to to start turning it around. I, that's I mean that sounds horribly pessimistic, but that's my answer. So not a lot of optimism there that the technology marvels of the internet age are about to usher in a new golden age of journalism. And perhaps that's a myth anyway. There never has been a golden age of journalism. The age of Hearst and Pulitzer may have featured as much agenda-driven news, put that news in quotes, as today's Fox News or MSNBC. Yet with all the excesses of his empire, including the fact that he really did help manufacture U.S. entry into the Spanish-American War, William Randolph Hearst left us, left us in our age of the Internet with our soon-to-be media-savvy president who makes it a key part of his message to assault dishonest reporters. Hearst left us a legacy, if we're smart enough to recognize it. If there is a Hearst legacy, it would probably be those few crusading newspapermen and journals who take up a cause very much as the Boston Globe did 
So that's the second reference in this episode to the Boston Globe. A reference, of course, to the paper's courageous and important reporting that exposed the extent of the child sex abuse scandal and the cover-up by the Catholic Archdiocese of Boston a decade ago. The movie version of that story, Spotlight, won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 2015. They knew, and they let it happen to kids! Okay? It could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been any of us. We got to nail these scumbags. We got to show people that nobody can get away with this. Not a priest or a cardinal or a freaking pope. You finished? Yeah, I am. This is bullshit. Actor Mark Ruffalo there in the movie Spotlight, portraying Boston Globe reporter Michael Resendez, who helped expose the sex abuse scandal. The editor of the Boston Globe, when the paper exposed the shocking failures of the Catholic Church in very Catholic Boston, was, of course, Marty Barron, now the editor of the Washington Post. The newspaper, at least in this observer's opinion, that did some of the very best reporting on the presidential campaign and the candidates. I don't think it was a coincidence, nor a conspiracy. Thanks to the wonderful historian David Nassau for sharing the story of the chief, William Randolph Hearst. Professor Nassau's most recent book is The Patriarch, The Remarkable Life and Turbulent Times of Joseph P. Kennedy. It was published by Penguin Press in 2012 and was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Damian Radcliffe, the University of Oregon journalism professor, has published extensively around the brave new world of digital media including fascinating studies of social media in the Middle East in the wake of the Arab Spring. Roger Plotho's newspaper, the Idaho Falls Post-Register, has been both condemned and broadly praised for its tough investigative reporting on local scandals. That's what journalism is all about. Jay Shalladay, the old curmudgeon who teaches now at LSU, and I say curmudgeon with real affection, was named a while back as the Educator of the Year by the newspaper and online division of the Association of Education and Journalism and Mass Communication. Jay's doing his thing, helping create a whole new generation of journalists. As skeptical as he is, I hope. And before we go, a little footnote on some of the latest work by Jennifer Stromer Galley, the Syracuse University social scientist. She's at work updating her book, Presidential Campaigning in the Internet Age, published by Oxford, that provides a history of U.S. presidential campaigns since 1996 and the way those campaigns have adapted to the digital age. She's developing an interesting theory. I don't know if you and your listeners remember Patrick Buchanan. Some of us do remember Patrick Buchanan, a Republican presidential candidate in 1992 and 96, and the Reform Party candidate in 2000. That was the year that Donald Trump first seriously flirted with a presidential candidacy. Trump briefly considered the Reform Party as his vehicle before abandoning the race. As we like to say around here, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Here's Pat Buchanan in 2000 doing, what else, bashing one of the biggest names in American journalism before an adoring crowd that comes very close to chanting, lock him up. Last fall, the most trusted man in America, Walter Cronkite. He got an award. He got an award from the World Federal Association. And he went up there to the World Federal Association, and what did he say? He said, we Americans have got to have the courage 
to give up our sovereignty. We've got to have the courage to put our troops under UN command and get a world army to defend world peace because that's where the world is gone. I'll give, I tell you what, I'll give Cronkite credit. He says out loud what Gore believes and what Clinton believes. And, what and actually, Buchanan's rhetoric as a populist is quite similar to Trump's rhetoric this election cycle and in terms of the strategies and ways that Buchanan used the Internet. Uh, message board forums and email back in 2000. There's some interesting parallels there, so I've been trying to contemplate that and figure out what that means. Many Things Considered is produced with support from Gallatin Public Affairs, operating for more than 25 years at the intersection of business, politics, the media, and government in the Pacific Northwest and beyond. On the web at gallatinpublicaffairs.com. Episodes of Many Things Considered are available on iTunes, Stitcher, the Gallatin website, and pretty much everywhere you can find a podcast. Spread the word and be in touch if you have questions, observations, or suggestions. We'd like to hear from you with your take on the connections between our politics and our history. One final thought. Kevin Levin, a historian and educator in Boston, wrote a piece recently in Smithsonian Magazine where he suggested the ultimate antidote to an American population willing to discount basic facts and embrace every sort of fake news is to simply apply the discipline of historical research to our consumption of news. Ask a few basic questions, Levin wrote. What's the real source of this information? Is it sourced? Can the writer realistically back up what's being said? Is information about the writer or the website readily available to the reader? Who are these people, and what might their motives be? All questions a historian would ask. Levin says few people would approach a complete stranger on the street for information about the pressing issues of the day. And yet, that is just how many of us behave on the Internet. Take it from me. Politics and history is a lot more fun and much more satisfying when you approach both skeptically with an open mind. Who knows, every once in a while, we might even learn something new. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Mark Johnson. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself. <laughs>